Welcome to my series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches and I'm a historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales and I specialise in the history of the early Tudors. In this podcast I'll be looking at the life of Catherine Howard, the fifth wife of Henry VIII. Catherine reigned as Queen from the 28th of July 1540 to the 22nd of November 1541 and she features in my Brandon series uh, so I've had to research her life in quite a lot of detail and Catherine's often described as naive at best and at worst wanton and reckless and as always the truth is more complex and in this podcast we'll explore the known facts. Catherine's date of birth is unknown and though historians believe it was between 1521 and 1523 uh, either would make her more than 30 years younger than Henry VIII and Catherine Howard and Anne Boleyn were of course first cousins and she would have been about 10 years old when Anne was sentenced to death for adultery and treason. Now Catherine's father was Lord Edmund Howard a younger brother of Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, and a long-serving courtier and jouster who organised the jousting celebrations at the joint coronation of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. And he also attended and took part in the jousting at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. Sadly for Catherine, her father had to escape to a post in Calais to avoid his creditors, and he left his children to be brought up by his relatives. Catherine's mother was Jocasta Culpepper, and known as Joyce, and she was distantly related to Thomas Culpepper, who we'll come to later on. But Joyce died when Catherine was about seven years old. And historian David Starkey describes Catherine's early life as a scrabbled childhood with a dominant providing mother and a weak debt-ridden and henpecked father so she didn't really have the best of starts in life although she was born into privilege and Catherine ended up living as a ward to her father's stepmother Lady Agnes Howard the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk in a shared dormitory known as the Maiden's Chamber at the Duchess's Manor House at Chesworth Park in the countryside near Horsham in West Sussex, along with several daughters of minor aristocrats, most of whom were related. And although the Dowager Duchess dressed as a nun, she was actually quite wealthy and one of the highest ranking ladies in England, but she believed in austerity and seems to have taken little interest in her wards other than to provide them with tutors for their education. Um, so Catherine would have grown up seeing the older girls allowing men to enter their rooms at night. And these girls um, had gifts from their suitors uh, in return for their favours. So it helps us to understand a little bit about how it came about that when Catherine was about 13 years old 
she suffered repeated um, advances and perhaps even assaults from her 36-year-old music tutor, a chap called Henry Mannix, who'd been employed by the Dowager Duchess to teach Catherine to play the virginals, a keyboard instrument. And later on, under oath, Catherine said, at the flattering and fair persuasions of Mannix, being but a young girl, I suffered him at sundry times to handle and touch the secret parts of my body, with neither became me with honesty to permit, nor him to require. And this is compounded by Mannix's confession that Catherine had been reluctant to be physical with him, but that she eventually gave him. And the abuse ended when Catherine moved from one of the Dowager Duchess's estates to another. But she soon um, attracted the attentions of another older man. In this case, the Dowager Duchess's secretary, Francis Derham. And when she was about 14, uh, the Duchess found out about all of this and locked her in her room. But it's said that Catherine persuaded one of the maids, Mary LaSalle, to steal the key and bring it to her. And the door was unlocked and Derham was able to come and go as he pleased. It was later reported that Catherine and Derham would commonly banquet and be merry till two or three of the clock in the morning, um, drinking wine, eating strawberries and other things to make good cheer. Catherine Howard later admitted that she was seduced by Derham and said that Francis Derham, by many persuasions, procured me to his vicious purpose and obtained first to lie upon my bed with his doublet and hose and after within the bed and finally he lay with me naked and used me in such sort as a man doth his wife and sundry times but how often I know not. Their relationship became serious enough that the pair were known to refer to one another as husband and wife. Inevitably, um, the Duchess sent Derham away to Ireland a little bit late, I think. And um, historian Josephine Wilkinson is quite forthright about what happened. While living with the Duchess of Norfolk, Catherine was sexually exploited by two men of the household, she said. Both men took advantage of their position of authority and Catherine had no means of defending herself. Historian Lucy Worsley adds, it's all very well to describe Catherine's easy charm and her abundant store of good nature, but it's questionable to do so about a girl who, from the age of 11 or 12, had older men coming into her bedroom, especially when Mannix was placed in a position of responsibility towards Catherine as a music teacher. Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, reported that Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, had lost much of his influence with the death of his niece, Anne Boleyn, but would have much to gain by encouraging the king's interest in his even younger niece, and he secured Catherine a place as one of Queen Anna of Cleves' maids of honour in late 1539. 
As the daughter of a younger son, Catherine wouldn't have ever imagined that she would be Queen of England, although she would have hoped to marry a wealthy courtier. Catherine was about 17 when she married the 49-year-old Henry VIII on the 28th of July 1540 at Oatlands Palace in Surrey, just three weeks after the king's brief marriage to Anna of Cleves was annulled. And the age difference wasn't that unusual as Henry's best friend Charles Brandon married his ward, Catherine Willoughby, who was 35 years younger. And she was the youngest of all of Henry's wives and he called Catherine his jewel for womanhood and his rose without thorns. The ceremony was conducted in private by Bishop Bonner and it was kept secret for more than a week. Catherine chose as her motto, no other wish than his. And Ambassador Chapuis wrote that the king is so amorous of her that he cannot treat her well enough and caresses her more than he did the others. Court records show that Henry presented Catherine with jewels, gold beads decorated with black enamel, emeralds lozenged with gold, brooches, crosses, pomanders, clocks, and whatever could be most splendidly encrusted in her honour. And soon after the wedding, he gave her a, a fine gown containing eight diamonds and seven rubies and a necklace of six fine diamonds and very fair rubies with pearls and a muffler of black velvet with 30 pearls on a chain of gold. Amazingly, um, Francis Derham returned from Ireland and visited Catherine demanding to be made her personal secretary. Now it's thought she agreed because she hoped it would be a way of keeping his silence but she must have worried about the gossipers at court, particularly uh, from the girls that knew her before she married Henry. I'd like to include now a short excerpt from my new audio book, um, Catherine Tudor Duchess, which is about the life of Catherine Willoughby, who married Charles Brandon and became Duchess of Suffolk. Because in this excerpt, she's hosting King Henry and his young queen, Catherine, at their home Grimsthorpe Castle on the Royal Progress to York in the summer of 1541. The unmistakable figure of the king rode at her husband's side on an enormous black charger. Dressed in bright green, he wore a heavy gold chain and a black hat laden with fine jewels. The Duke of Norfolk rode behind them with a man she recognised as the scheming French ambassador Charles de Marillac. Catherine caught sight of their new queen with Princess Mary in a gilded carriage drawn by four white horses. Pairs of knights carrying colourful silk banners led the king's bodyguard of eighty archers. Then yeoman soldiers marched in straggling ranks ahead of an endless procession of wagons laden with luggage and supplies. This was more than a summer progress. The sound of thousands of iron-shod hooves, rattling carriages and marching boots competed with the deep beat of drums and the sharp fanfares of the herald's trumpets. King Henry was sending a clear message to the northern rebels, and Catherine had never seen anything like it. The newly built Great Hall of Grimsthorpe, which had seemed so spacious, now barely managed to seat so many. 
On the top table, Charles as host sat at the king's right hand next to the Duke of Norfolk, with Catherine as hostess at the queen's side, to the left of Princess Mary. Bishops sat with ambassadors, and the knights and nobles of court sat with their ladies on forms at trestle tables which were covered with fine white linen. Scented beeswax candles burned in silver candlesticks, and the hall buzzed with conversation and laughter as the musicians Charles hired from Lincoln played their lutes. Catherine dipped her fingers in the engraved silver ewer, warmed and scented with rosewater brought by one of her army of liveried servants. She studied her guests, many of whom she knew by name, but a good few were strangers to her. She recognised Gregory, Baron Cromwell, seated with his wife, Lady Elizabeth, the younger sister of the late Queen Jane. Gregory was the same age as Catherine, and shared many of his father's qualities as well as being a skilled jouster. She hoped he knew she could have done nothing to prevent his father's downfall. On the Queen's side sat the controversial Lady Margaret Douglas, daughter of the King's sister Margaret Tudor and half-sister of King James. She'd been lady-in-waiting to Princess Mary, Anne Boleyn, and now the new Queen. After the scandal, one of the Norfolk's half-brothers died mysteriously in the Tower of London, where he'd been imprisoned for his liaison with Lady Margaret. Catherine suspected she was only present to help Henry secure the support of the Scottish King. Catherine picked at a plate of roasted ducklings in a honey and ginger sauce, finding little enough tender meat on the tiny bones. She turned as the king erupted with laughter at something Charles said. She'd never found her husband witty, yet Henry clearly did, a worrying reminder she didn't truly know either of them. It was hard to believe this happy king had ordered the death of Princess Mary's old governess in May. Lady Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, had waited in the tower for two years on vague charges of treason. The only evidence was that she'd forbidden her servants from reading the English Bible. Charles witnessed her execution, counting ten blows by her inept executioner who struck her in the shoulder before finishing his task. Catherine forced the horrific thought from her mind as her servant filled her goblet of flawless glass, one of a set of twelve, a gift for Charles from a hopeful Venetian ambassador. The glass sparkled in the candlelight, making the red wine glow like liquid rubies. Catherine lifted hers and turned to Princess Mary. My mother would have been so happy to see you back here, Your Grace. Princess Mary smiled and raised her own glass of wine in a toast. To her memory... She took a delicate sip as if she expected to dislike the taste. I miss your dear mother. She tried her best for your mother to be allowed to see you. Catherine glanced at the king, but he was still deep in conversation with Charles. There were so many questions she would like to ask Princess Mary, but few without some risk, so she held the uncomfortable silence. The new young queen caught her eye. How was your journey, your majesty? The title took a conscious effort. It seemed only a moment ago she'd been one of Lady Anna's maids of honour. Catherine worried for her. Rumours of past liaisons, true or not, had a way of reaching the ears of the king. Queen Catherine waved a gold-ringed hand in the air, implying she'd rather not be reminded. The rain turned the roads to such thick mud there was talk of us returning. She glanced across at Charles, still discussing something with the king. Suffolk did well to ensure we arrived here on time. Catherine tried to hide her annoyance at the young queen's superior tone. I heard you were taken ill on the journey. I trust you are fully recovered. 
Queen Catherine sighed, seemingly bored with the banquet before it started. There was nothing, Duchess. Although she was talking to Catherine, she seemed more interested in the rowdy young guests at the far tables. Better here than in London. There's talk of plague and I can't bear the stink of the sewers in summer. She sucked at a sugared plum and spat out the stone. For a second, Catherine glimpsed the intelligent, worldly-wise girl who now masqueraded as Henry's compliant queen. There'd been at least two occasions when Charles announced to her that Catherine Howard was with child, yet there was no sign of it. Another question she'd like to ask but thought better of it. Their new queen seemed younger than her eighteen years, her vivacious attitude a good alternative to conventional beauty. Her talent was to make men believe they deserved the twinkle in her eye. Her uncle Norfolk had done well with one niece before it went so tragically wrong. Had he whispered to the king that he had another, more biddable niece? Looking at them both, sitting close together yet so far apart on any measure, the contrast between the ageing, disabled king and his pretty young wife troubled Catherine. She felt an unexpected protectiveness towards Catherine Howard, although she didn't like her or her ambitious uncle Thomas. It was said that Grimsthorpe Castle was one of the few venues on the progress to York where a chap called Thomas Culpepper didn't visit the Queen at night. And I'd like to look at Thomas Culpepper's background. He was handsome, single, about Catherine's age. He was a popular courtier and a favourite of Henry VIII. And he'd been made a gentleman of the King's Privy Chamber, which meant that he had daily close access to the King, helping him to dress and undress and even sleeping in the King's bedchamber. And Thomas Culpepper was chosen as one of the welcoming party sent to greet Anna of Cleves when she arrived in England. And as Catherine was one of Lady Anna's new maids of honour, it's likely that this was when they first spent time together and possibly even began a love affair. Now, it's, it's important to remember that at the time there was nothing wrong with that in that uh, Thomas Culpepper was exactly the sort of man um, that might be appropriate for young Catherine. Where it started going wrong is that um, witnesses later alleged that um, Thomas Culpepper visited Catherine late at night, uh, aided and abetted by her lady-in-waiting, Lady Jane Rochford, who was the widow of George Boleyn, the executed brother of Anne Boleyn. Now, we have to remember that the Tudor tradition was all about these games of courtly love. So Catherine asking um, Lady Rochford to take love tokens to Thomas Culpepper might be more innocent than it seems. There's no evidence that Catherine ever slept with him. All that's known about Culpepper and Catherine is that they regularly met in secret together and um, even Culpepper claimed that Catherine was jittery and scared during these meetings and servants admitted that Catherine continually asked Culpepper to leave her alone. It was on the 30th of October 1541 
that Archbishop Thomas Cranmer informed Henry VIII by letter, which was said to have been left in Henry's personal pew in the Chapel Royal at Hampton Court for him to find. Now the king ordered Cranmer to thoroughly investigate these claims and ordered Catherine to be confined to her apartments with only one attendant, Lady Jane Rochford. Deerham was arrested and tortured and soon confessed and named Culpepper, who was also arrested. And um, there's a debate about whether he confessed rather than face torture or was tortured. But either way, he was quite happy to tell it exactly as it was. And Catherine was combined, confined to her apartments at Hampton Court Palace. And interestingly, Henry never saw Catherine again after that time. On the 13th of November 1541, Catherine was moved to Sion Abbey, which was a former convent. And on the 22nd of November, a proclamation was made at Hampton Court Palace that Catherine had forfeited her honour and was no longer Queen of England. The elderly Dowager Duchess of Norfolk and Lady Jane Rochford and the Duchess's um, son and daughter were all imprisoned and questioned at the Tower of London about what they knew of Catherine's past. Now Lady Jane Rochford had previously escaped punishment when her husband was tried for treason by telling the truth as she saw it and no lady-in-waiting had followed Anne Boleyn to the block. So again, she signed a deposition stating that Culpepper had known the Queen carnally and considering all things that this deposition hath heard and seen. And perhaps if Thomas Cromwell had still been alive, he might have been able to save her. But Jane had crossed the king once too often. Catherine was charged with treason for her intent to commit adultery with Thomas Culpepper and for failing to tell Henry about her relationships with Francis Derham and Henry Mannix that occurred before the marriage. Statements from the many witnesses show that Catherine didn't consent to either Mannix or Derham's advances, but that didn't seem to make any difference at all. Derham and Culpepper were tried and condemned to death for treason. And on the 10th of December 1541, Francis Derham was hung, drawn and quartered at Tyburn, while Thomas Culpepper was allowed the king's mercy of simply being beheaded, although because of the seriousness of his crime, he was tied to a hurdle and dragged through the cobbled streets to Tyburn. The heads of both men were displayed on pikes on London Bridge. And Catherine was moved to the Tower of London on the 10th of February 1542. So she had quite a long wait to think about it all. And Chapuis wrote that the Lord Privy Seal with a number of Privy Councillors and servants went first in a great barge. Then came the Queen with three or four men and as many ladies in a smaller barge covered then the king of suffolk in a great barge with a company of his men and of course their route would have taken catherine under london bridge where she could have seen the severed heads of culpepper and Aram on spikes neither 
Catherine or Jane would have a trial, as both were condemned to death by an act of attainder signed by the king. And on the evening of Sunday the 12th of February, Catherine was told to dispose of her soul and prepare for death, as she was to die at nine o'clock the next morning. Chapuis reported that she asked for the block to be brought to her cell so that she might know how to place herself. Catherine was executed on Monday the 13th of February in a private execution at the Tower of London, followed by Lady Jane Rochford at the same spot where her cousin Queen Anne Boleyn had been executed six years before. Catherine had been queen for just 18 months. Uh, an eyewitness, a merchant named Otwell Johnson, was present and wrote in a letter to his brother that the Queen made the most godly and Christian end and asked for all Christian people to take regard unto her worthy and just punishment with death for her offences against God and heinously from her youth upward in breaking all of his commandments and also against the King's Royal Majesty very dangerously. Catherine Howard was buried in the chapel of St Peter ad Vernicula at the Tower of London and I recently visited the chapel. It's a peaceful place but with such a powerful sense of its place in history and I discovered talking to the yeoman warder there that the chapel had been used as a general cemetery for many years so there are countless remains under the floor but during a Victorian restoration of the chapel in 1876 the burials in front of the altar were marked with memorial tiles which show Catherine buried alongside her companion Lady Jane Rochford and actually Lady Jane was buried not far from her unfortunate husband. Adjacent to the chapel is the green lawn of Tower Green where Catherine was executed and a large memorial sculpture um, has the inscription Gentle visitor, pause a while. Where you stand, death cut away the light of many days. Here jewelled names were broken from the vivid thread of life. May they rest in peace while we walk the generations around their strife and courage under these restless skies. So how should Catherine be remembered? The evidence shows she was taken advantage of by men older than her and I'd include her uncle the Duke of Norfolk and Henry VIII. They all knew what they were doing but they condemned her for it and all of, of all Henry's wives, I'd argue that Catherine was the most that was a victim of circumstances beyond her control and should be remembered in the context of the double standards of Tudor times. For more information about Catherine Howard, I recommend Josephine Wilkinson's well-researched book, Catherine Howard, The Tragic Story of Henry VIII's Fifth Queen. Josephine says... Uh, a bright and kind and intelligent young woman, Catherine was fond of clothes and dancing, yet she also had a strong sense of duty and tried to be a good wife to Henry. She handled herself with grace and queenly dignity to the end. I also enjoyed reading 
Julia Fox's excellent biography of Jane Boleyn, which includes an interesting analysis of Jane's part in Catherine's downfall. And I'll be making a podcast about Jane's fascinating life as part of this series. Links to all my books can be found on my website at tonyriches.com. And thank you for listening.